How are you this morning? How are you really doing? And when I ask that question, how does that feel in your body? You see, for me, several years ago, a lot of people wanted to know how I was doing. I happened to be going through a lot personally and with my family. And so, so many loving and caring people would want to know, how are you? How are you doing? Terabeth, how are you really doing? And I confess to you, years later, every time I heard that question, I felt angry, frustrated. Why? Because of the feeling of dissonance that it created in my own body. See, in my family, when anyone asked us how we were doing, the immediate response was super fantastic. That was our family phrase. Life was great, life was good, and we should only ever only be doing super fantastic. Our family narrative growing up, no matter how good or no matter how difficult and challenging things were, it was always nothing to see here. Everybody move along, we're doing great. In fact, we're not just doing great, we're doing super fantastic. And so a couple of years ago when my world began to cave in around me, many loving and caring people wanted to know, Tara Beth, how are you doing? You know, they'd even touch the side of my arm sometimes. How are you really doing? And so much of me wanted to tell them, I'm not doing great, I'm not okay but I just couldn't muster up the courage to do it. In early February of 2020, when I was senior pastor at a church in Southern California, our church was the host site of a major conference. And our church staff was sitting in our banquet hall and, and we were hosting the thing and we were so proud to be hosting this conference with, with all of these local churches. And I was sitting at a round table with our staff and I looked down at my phone and my dad had finally responded to the question that I have been dying to know all day. Dad, how was your doctor's appointment? What did they say? You see, leading up to that moment, we had been on an 18-month long journey of trying to figure out exactly what was going on with my dad. And finally, I had the answer as I sat in a room surrounded by other pastors and surrounded by my staff and, and colleagues. And I looked down at my phone and it said, not good, I have six to nine months to live. In that moment, it felt as though the world was caving in around me. I quietly got up from the table and I left our conference room banquet hall and I went and I stepped outside to an enclosed gazebo and I put my back against the wall, slid down and hid from the world around me and began to weep. And as I wept, I felt shame. I thought, I'm their senior leader. I cannot fall apart here in the middle of this conference. I'm supposed to be great. I'm supposed to be good. I'm supposed to be strong. And I was full of all sorts of complex emotions wanting to keep it together for the staff and, and on the other end feeling so much sadness and the loss of my dad some, someday. 
And, and even so many complex emotions of feeling shame of all the feelings and stuff that I was navigating with my family. And so I hid, not wanting to be seen in my pain. And so I ask you again, how are you doing today? If you're doing great today, I'm so happy for you and with you. I actually happen to be doing pretty good today as well. And also here's the reality, if you're doing great today, there will come a day where you may not be okay. There might come a day where things won't be great. And the reality is so many of us navigate our pain alone and in hiding. Why? Because we don't want to be seen in our pain. We don't want to be known in our pain. Andy Kobler notes three different ways that we often respond and try to navigate pain in our own personal darkness. She says the first way is we try to buck up. That was my family narrative. Buck up, chin up, look at the positive and everything, look for the silver lining and just keep on muscling our way through things. Another way is we just think, well, you know what? Maybe just eventually our problems are gonna go away and they're going to resolve and so just keep going and it will work itself out eventually. Uh, the next way is, is we just try to forget it. Block it out of our memory, forget, move along. Often a family narrative is just forget it. Forget, forgive, and move along. Why do we do this? Why? Well, the first reason we do this is because there's a stigma. Especially when it comes to mental health or depression or anxiety, there is a stigma with it. And oftentimes in the faith community, this stigma is wrapped up in this Christian faith. Well, if you're not okay, maybe you don't have enough faith. Maybe you're not praying enough. Maybe you're not turning to God enough. The second reason why we're afraid to be known in our pain is, is we're, we're afraid of the, the messy, the messiness of it. If people find out, maybe, maybe I won't get opportunities anymore or maybe they won't want to be close to me. We, we want the, the perfectly wrapped up in a bow lives. We don't want to be labeled we don't want to be stereotyped. We don't want to be that person. The third way is we don't want to feel out of place. We just want to get in line and behave like the rest of the world. So here's the sad reality. 33.7% of people who have a mental illness of any kind or if they're in, on, in any medication at all, whether it be depression or just simple anxiety, 33.7% of people keep the matter private. And I suspect that number would go up for anyone that keeps matters private who just, they're not doing well. Life's been hard. Maybe they're navigating their own personal darkness. But here's what we often forget. This book is a book of a human experience, of humans experiencing pain and personal darkness and loss. 
moments of deep anguish and anxiety and even depression. There's stories of loss, doubts, fears, heartaches. And what we see in this book is a God that moves towards those who are living in the darkness and the wilderness. And perhaps no greater book to describe or paint that picture for us than the book of Psalms. See, I love the way that Tish Harrison Warren describes the book of the Psalms. She says the Psalms are dramatic. And life, even ordinary life, is dramatic, drenched in meaning, full of glorious beauty and deep pain. I'm reminded this morning of of one in particular that I turned to a number of times in the last few years. It gave me words to pray. Comes from Psalm chapter six. Says this, have mercy on me, Lord, for I am faint. Heal me, Lord, for my bones are in agony. My soul is in deep anguish. How long, O Lord, how long? Turn, Lord, and deliver me. Save me because of your unfailing love. Among the dead, no one proclaims your name. Who praises you from the grave? I am worn out from my groaning. All night long, I flood my bed with weeping, and I drench my couch with tears. My eyes grow weak with sorry. They fail me because of my foes. Away from me, all you who do evil, for the Lord has heard my weeping. The Lord has heard my cry for mercy. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies will be overwhelmed with shame and anguish. They will turn back and suddenly be put to shame. It's not often a text we hear on a Sunday morning. This isn't necessarily Sunday morning material. This isn't necessarily a song that you would hear the praise team singing. It's troubling. His bones are in anguish. He is drenching his couch with his own tears and he begs of the Lord to come, to come and save him, to come and rescue him. It's not necessarily a feel-good text. He's just worn down. He's just not okay. And although we don't often read these texts on a Sunday morning, these are from the word of God. This is from the good book. This is from the holy scriptures. Again, I love the way that Tish Harrison Warren talks about this book, the book of Psalms. She says, the Psalms were the church's first prayer book. Think about that. Those words that I just read was a prayer book for the early church. She says, for the earliest Christian fathers and mothers, prayer was a recitation of the Psalms in the same way that today's evangelical might assume that prayer is talking to God in our own words. Well, if Psalm 6 is the early church's first prayer book, and if it's in the word of God, and and the psalmist writes from a place of deep and utter anguish that he's actually really not okay, if we were to ask him how he's doing on a Sunday morning, he might respond, my bones are in anguish. And we'd say, whoa, that's really heavy stuff. I think what that means then 
is that it really is okay to not be okay, but not just that, but that it's safe, that it's heard, that it's seen, and that it's welcome. You still might be thinking, sure, okay, I'm with you. It's, it's okay to not be okay. But where's God? He's in utter anguish. His couch is drenched with tears. And some of you might be asking that same question. Where's God in my pain? Many psychologists will tell you that anxiety or depression or pain or even just grief and sadness, if you couple that with loneliness, things can begin to spiral even faster. Since 1980, loneliness has more than doubled. And scholars will even note that since 2019, 61% of adults call themselves lonely or identify themselves as lonely. And they note that if it continues at the rate since it's grown, since the 80s, 100% of adults would consider themselves lonely by 2025. That's three years from now. Now we know that it's not gonna continue at that rate, but what that does communicate to us is how quickly people are identifying as being lonely. And we know that the more loneliness a person experiences in their life, the more at risk they are to harm on their own body. Inflammation, heart disease, Alzheimer's, and on. And we could go down through the list of the harm that loneliness has on the body. And so when we read the Psalms, we might think that the psalmist is very alone. Where is God? But what we discover is he actually turns his prayers towards God. He says, the Lord has heard my prayer. The Lord has heard my anguish. The Lord hears my cries. In other words, the psalmist is okay with not just praying these words, but actually turning his pain towards God and offering it up towards God. And so we see this, this, this anguish being directed towards God, but then what we also discover in this book, the good book, the holy book, it's a God that over and over and over again sees God's people in his anguish, in their anguish. I am reminded of the story in, in Genesis of Abram and Sarah. They, they were barren and God promised them that they would have a child. Well, they got really impatient. Uh, not only was she barren, but she was old. And so Sarai turns to um, uh, their, their maidservant by the name of Hagar, and, and she says to her husband, Abram, she says, Abram, I can't take it anymore. I don't know if I can trust God. You must go and you must sleep with the servant, Hagar. So he does exactly that, and she has a baby. And Sarai becomes incredibly, like, raging jealous her jealousy just overtakes her and she takes it out on the maidservant Hagar in such a way she despised her and caused her to run off alone in the wilderness. 
And so Hagar has now been rejected by the people that know her the most, the people that she has trusted her life with, the people that she has given complete and total loyalty to. She now is left alone hiding. She's run off. She, has, she is alone and she's hiding in the wilderness. And as she's there in the wilderness, the text tells us this. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. And the angel of the Lord added, I will increase your descendants so much and they will be too numerous to count. And the angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael. For the Lord has heard your misery. Verse 13. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. There she is alone in the wilderness in anguish and hiding. And the angel of the Lord comes to her and speaks on behalf of God. And her response is, I've now seen the one who sees me. Once there she was alone hidden in the wilderness, experiencing the devastation of her life. And her healing begins to happen, not when she knows God, but when she experiences the power of God seeing her. That fear of being known and understood, I can relate. Over two years ago, when I was going through my own pain and anguish, to be seen in that, well, that felt too risky. What if I was that person? What if I was rejected? What if they would no longer see me as their pastor and their leader? What if they were worried about me? I was called to care for them. Kurt Thompson puts the terror of being known this way. He says, to be known is to be pursued, examined, and shaken. To be known is to be loved and to have hopes and demands placed on you. You're now in a position of vulnerability. It is too risky. Not only the furniture in your home being rearranged, but your floor plans being rewritten, your walls being demolished and reconstructed. To be known means that you allow your shame and guilt to be exposed in order for them to be healed. You see, Hagar discovered something powerful there in the wilderness. There she was naked, Vulnerable in her shame, in her despair, in her darkness, in her pain. And she discovered the healing power of the experience of being seen, of being known, and of being understood by God. 
You see, as a pastor, I'm in the business of knowing a lot of things about God. I try. And sometimes as pastors, we get puffed up in our theology. It's a temptation. Uh, We want to study about God. I I love going out to coffee with anyone and talking theology. Invite me. I'd love to go sit and have coffee and talk Greek, talk theology, anything with you, and talk about what you're reading. I love talking about God. And for decades, my pursuit of knowing God was almost a single-minded, one-way focus. And coupled with that was my family narrative. Nothing to see here. Move along. And this, no doubt, was our narrative when everything was on fire, too. See, Kurt Thompson would say that the path to being known may at times feel too difficult to travel. We're good at putting up the garage doors of our hearts. We're good at at being guarded. We're good at protecting ourselves. But what Hagar discovered there in the wilderness is that she didn't have to be afraid to be seen. She didn't have to fear being known or understood. And over and over and over again in scripture, we see a God that moves towards people, not away. A God that moves towards people who are in the ditches of life, who are despairing, who are out of sorts, who are doubting, who are experiencing life crippling anxiety. And in the act of moving towards them, when he sees them just as they are, he doesn't reject them, but instead he envelops them with grace a healing kind of grace. Peace, throughout this series over the next three weeks, we're gonna unpack together different lifelines that we can hold on to when we are in the most despairing situations of life or maybe anxiety or whatever it is. There are different lifelines or another way to put it are, are streams of grace that God offers us. But perhaps the first one that we can begin with today is opening ourselves up and discovering the healing experience of being known and being understood. Vulnerable just as you are. See, again, Kurt Thompson puts it this way. He says, to be known is one of God's passions. While he desires for us to have the experience of being known by him, just as important is his desire to experience being known by us. This is not simply for our benefit, as if he is not affected by us. Listen to this. He desires to be known by us as much for what it does for him as for what it does for us. One of our favorite games to play as a family is hide and seek. And our youngest son, Noah, he's the youngest. And so he's a little guy. 
And he is really, really, really good at hiding and playing hide and seek. And when we lived in our home in Southern California, it was an older home with some of those like built-in closets in the wall. And we played hide and seek one, one evening and our, the, their favorite kind of hide and seek was to turn off all the lights in the house. Pitch dark, no lights allowed. Couldn't even use your cell phone light. And so the four of us, we played and, and we found everyone ex- except for Noah. We, we could not find him. We were walking through the house. Noah, come out, come out, wherever you are. Noah. Or when I was a child, what did we say? Ali, Ali, oxen free. Noah, where are you? You're the last one. You won. Come out, come out, wherever you are. Finally, after 10 minutes or so of this, we gave up. We, we, we turned on the lights and I, I got back to work on the computer. Caleb turned on a TV show. Jeff got back to work on his computer. And 45 minutes goes by and Noah finally comes out. He was so proud of himself. And he wasn't about to give away the hiding spot. He's really good at hiding. Some of you are really good at hiding and keeping yourself hidden, guarded. Nothing to see here. Everything's fine. If you ask me how I'm really doing, I'll tell you that I'm great. Can I ask you again? How are you today? So there I was in the gazebo in Southern California as the rest of the pastoral staff was there in the banquet hall. And I sat there like a wet noodle on the floor as I heard the creaking of a door open. And all of a sudden I felt hand after hand after hand after hand placed on my shoulder and on my back and on my head. And I began to hear them praying. And I began to hear, Pastor, we're with you. Pastor, you're safe. Pastor, it's okay. You can cry. Here's some Kleenexes. And that may not have been the beginning of the journey, but it was part of the journey for me of discovering that healing power and experience of being known, of being known in our deep sadness and anguish and the safety of that. And I experienced extensions of that through close family, friends, best friends, my husband, and even the gift of therapy. For five years, God took me on a radical journey of learning that the Christian faith It's not just knowing God. And it's not definitely not just knowing a lot about God. But it's discovering and experiencing the power of being known, of being loved, and being seen. Perhaps today that's the lifeline you might hold on to. Let us pray.
God, you are here. We collectively open our hearts to you. And I pray for those who are in the ditches and pain in life. Might your healing, loving, gracious presence fill their weary and aching souls. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. To lift your palms up like this. In the posture of surrender. As your palms are up like this, I want to invite you to close your eyes and bow your heads. Because perhaps this is where we can start today. It's the posture of surrender and opening ourselves up to God. Because today, right here, right now, or wherever you are, the one and true and only lifeline is here. He sees you just as you are and he's wrapped in grace, he's wrapped in love, he's wrapped in peace. Nothing surprises him. Andy Kobler describes the act of surrender like this. She says, it's feeling safe enough to release our grip. What do you have a grip on right now? Here among us today is a God that sees you just as you are. And your numbness and your aches and your doubts and your depression and your anxiety and your questions and your loneliness. And you are safe. And you are loved. So I want to invite you to take a deep breath with me. Breathe in and hold. God is here. And now exhale. You are loved. Breathe in, hold. God is here. Exhale, hold. You are loved. Breathe in, hold. God of peace, exhale, hold. Replace my weariness with hope.